This week's episode of Escape Pod is rated 15 and up for sexual imagery, violent imagery, and language. Escape Pod 331 February 9th, 2012 Devour by Stein Metz Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your host, Mer Lafferty. We have a difficult story this week. We say we want fun stories, and that's primarily what we look for. But every once in a while, a story comes along that puts a fish hook in your soul and pulls. So that is what Devour by Ferret Steinmetz does. Ferret Steinmetz wandered for 20 years without a sail until he stumbled upon the Clarion and Bible Paradise Writers' Workshops and was reborn. In the three intervening years, he's sold 17 stories and, like any good Pokemon, is still evolving. He lives in Cleveland with a lovely wife, a well-worn copy of Rock Band, and a friendly ghost. You can keep up with his relentless blogging and stories at theferret.com. That's two R's and two T's. Everyone misspells it. Please don't. Our story is narrated by Podcastle co-editor Dave Thompson and is an Escape Pod original. So hold on to someone you love. Hold tight. It's story time. Devour by Ferret Steinmetz I want some water, Sergio says. The bicycle chains clank as he strains to put his feet on the floor. Sergio designed his own restraints. He had at least 15 plumbers on payroll who could have installed the chains, but Sergio's never trusted anything he didn't build with his own hands. So he deep-drilled gear mounts into our guest room's floral wallpaper, leaving me to string greased roller chains through the cast-iron curlicues of the canopy bed. You're doing well, Bruce, he lied, trying to smile, but his lips were already desiccated, pulled too tight at the edges. Not his lips at all. I slowed him down. I had soft lawyer's hands, more used to keyboards than Allen wrenches. Yet we both knew it would be the last time we could touch each other. So I asked him for help I didn't need, and he took my hands in his to guide the chains through what he referred to as the marionette mounts. Then he sat on the bed and held out his wrists while I snapped the manacles on. The chamois lining was my idea, and we kissed. It was a long, slow kiss that needed to summarize 32 years of marriage, and it should have been comforting, but his mouth was a betrayal. His lips had resorbed from their lush plumpness. His tongue had withdrawn to a stub. His kiss still sent flutters down my spine. I pressed my hands against his back, moving towards making love, but Sergio pushed me away. We don't know how transmissible this is, he said. Then he tugged on the chains to verify he could lie down and sit up but not leave the bed. I pressed the keys into his palm, trying to burn the feeling of his skin into mine forever. He snipped the keys in half with a bolt cutter, then flung it all into the corner. That's that, he said, and rolled away for me to cry. My arms ached, still ache, from not being able to hold him. 
six days later, I'm still here. And Sergio is still leaving. I want some water, he repeats now. Louder, more insistent. Too angry to be really Sergio. You never wanted water before, I say, keeping a careful distance from the bed. You like orange juice. Sergio tried to put his head in his hands. The chains pull him short. For Christ's sakes, Bruce, he says. I'm dying. There are going to be changes. Yes, I say guardedly, there are. And it's apple cider I like, and a chilled glass from the local Guoren. No, orchard. And not that sugared crap you like. Don't try to trick me, okay? It's just insulting to. He almost says to us, but then shudders. I'm not going to do anything crazy with water, he begs. I can't turn it into, what's the word? Flamethrowers. It's water. I'm just thirsty. I'll fight with you about the things that matter, but just give me some damn water, he barks. I stare at him, knowing the old Sergio never yelled, wondering how much is left. Because I can see the traces of a young Sergio within the thing trapped in the four-poster right now. Sergio always had that perfect, youthful mix of good cheekbones and lean muscle. Now his thighs and biceps are swollen, like a hormone-stuffed steer. But aside from that, Sergio would be the envy of any plastic surgeon. His crow's feet have been pulled from his skin, his collagen replenished, his hair once a brilliant mane of salt and pepper curls, has taken a lank black at the roots. It looks like some horrid dye job grown out, all that silver dangling from ends of Patient Zero's flat, dark strands. It makes me feel old. I am old, but even back when we'd first started dating, my colleagues always mistook me for his father, a constant humiliation. Sergio never flinched, Instead, he squeezed my ass and asked, Have you met my sugar daddy? I hated that. It made him look like a whore, and he wasn't. He used the money from his plumbing company to support me proudly, even though I was a sucker for pro bono cases that drove him batty. I never knew you had such a soft spot for hookers, he'd joke. It makes me feel all warm and fuzzy, knowing you love murderers, smack addicts, and me. Then he'd look down into his beer bottle and add, but if it makes you happy, I'll unclog every pipe in the Bronx to keep you funded. Do you even know how to fit a pipe collar? I ask the Sergio on the bed. He shakes his head. You put cement around it? Screw it into the next joint, I think? Can you stop the fucking examination and get me a goddamn drink? Then he adds a muttered, please? And I see his humiliation. Sergio was infamous among my protester buddies for his handouts weakened both the giver and the receiver tirades. Now, he's reduced to begging for water. So I walk down the spiral stairs to the kitchen, feeling battered by gaiety. We crammed our summer home with bright colors, festive nooks, sunny windows, making it the perfect escape from our sedate brownstone in Brooklyn. We hired caterers to fuel our infamous week-long summer fiestas, attended by all our friends. Now, it seems like a brass band crashing through a Protestant funeral. 
I return and toss him a bottle of Andronica's distilled. He gulps it down gratefully. Give me back the bottle, I say. He crushes it in a curl of plastic. I glance at the chains. Sergio told me they had a tensile strength of 8,000 pounds. Is that enough? I'm not a child, Bruce, he snaps. You could ask respectfully. A man deserves Jing Yi, Shi Lao Tu. I don't know what the rules are, Serge. I apologize. I can't let you keep anything. If you... You're wrong about what's dangerous for you to have, and you... And I'm gone, then. Then who's going to handle your calls from the plumbing company? His forehead, ridged with new protective bones, creases into a frown. It's an argument to both sides, so I wait. Knowing how many thoughts are in his brain now, he has to sort through them to figure out which ones are his. That's... Reasonable, he concludes, ashamed. Shrengla. My quiet apologies. He looks the bottle. The water, he says. It tastes different. It's distilled, Serge. There's nothing to it. I know that, but I'm tasting top notes. Copper and manganese. And his face reddens. When I swallow... Gurgles in different ways. Water sloshing down new pipes. He laughs weakly. Can I try one thing, please? I swear, I will give you the bottle after this. I nod, hating myself. I shouldn't trust him. But how can I not? I still see Sergio. He grips the crushed plastic in one hand like it's a microphone on karaoke night. But instead of bursting into his usual rendition of I will survive, he tears the top of the bottle off with shark-like teeth. The shredded edges dig into his lips. The plastic makes a horrid crinkling noise as a fist-sized chunk peristalts down his gullet. Then he looks at me, his distorted features a muddle of emotions. The satisfaction of a man who's just had the meal he's been longing for. The horror of knowing what that meal is. He drools blood and saliva on the shredded bottle. He slowly pulls it away from his mouth and tosses it to me. Don't get near me, he whimpers. Don't go. I won't, tears sting my eyes. I'll stay until the last of you is... is... absorbed, he lets out a sob, then turns away from me, ashamed, hugging himself. He falls asleep instantly, exhausted from the transformation. Please be a bad strain, I whisper. Please, mutate out of existence. That's what you're supposed to do, isn't it? I lean against the blankets I've pushed against the wall and try to sleep. Mercifully, I dream of Sergio. You're serving vegetables at a living will party, said the man with the centaur tattoo, looking at the Tupperware tray of broccoli in my hands. How morbidly appropriate. My dreams are bolt holes these days. The only way I can get through this is to keep dredging up my best memories. And this one's my finest treasure. The day I met Sergio. If you like, you can do shots through the feeding tubes on the dining table, I reply, glancing over. Predictably, all the single guys are showing off by deep-throating the tubes and then pouring butter shots down. 
I figure that if I have to make the community deal with the realities of a spreading gonorrhea 3, an upswell of assaults by fundy Leviticites, and New York's chronic inability to acknowledge same-sex partnerships, I might as well make it fun. It was destined to be fun, he says, giving me that lush-lipped grin. You come to a party where guys want doctors to pull their plug once they get a head cold, you know you're finding men who give up easy. He winks. I let the crowd keep bumping us into each other. His flannel shirt sleeves are rolled down, nearly covering a magnificent Grecian centaur tattoo. And his smile is purest charm, a swarthy Cary Grant. The banter makes me feel like Hepburn. So did you get your living will? I ask. I don't quite dare to place my hand on his shoulder to steer him towards the display. There's a stack of samples in the corner. As much as I'm longing for you to witness me, I don't think you have a contract to fit me. So you're immortal. You don't need a plan for death? The room darkens. His lips shrink a little, revealing jagged teeth. That's just the dream, though. Foreshadowing. Oh, fuck. I wish, he laughs. All your wills there end in, when things get bad, cut me off. Fuck that. I don't care if all that's left of me is a pinky finger. I want that digit hooked up to the best life support system in the world, with a team of hot male nurses urging that nail to grow. There's no God, nothing but this life, so my damn family can spin themselves broke. Just keep me in the game, guys. You got a living will like that for me? Uh, Bruce, I say. And as I juggle the tray to extend my hand, it's him again. So beautiful and strong. And yes, I both can and should write you a will. Because your loved one should know that you're a selfish jackass who doesn't care about the trauma you'll cause them. So if I asked you to write me one, would that give me your number? Hell, I smiled, fishing a business card from my vest pocket. You had that the minute you got my joke about the living will vegetables. He takes the card, letting his hands brush mine in a way that I realized that this wasn't simple flirtation, that he actually was going to call me, and the memory of his fingers on my wrist jars me from sleep. I awake to Sergio, only feet away and chained on the bed, and I remember his touch so vividly that I push my face into the blankets so I won't wake him up as I cry. My footsteps echo off of terracotta tiles as I pace the downstairs party areas, the couches as distant as islands in the sea. Our summer home was designed for crowds. I collapse into an overstuffed love seat to stare at our painted centaur murals. They're galloping between Greek arches, dancing under the stars. Sergio loves centaurs. He'd pledged to Delta Lambda Phi, and even though he dropped out of college shortly after, the Lambda Centaurs had stayed with him. They're in touch with their nature, he said. They can't deny their beasts, but they master that to become something greater. But as I look at the Wilding Centaurs, I see them for what they are. Full men being swallowed by the gullet of a headless equine. Their smiles have revealed themselves to be terrified rictuses as the fur creeps up their bellies, gobbling their human skin. Their dances are frenzied contortions, as the human torsos wave their arms in vain struggles to free themselves. The horse halves galloping madly to befuddle them. They thrust their hands high into the air, 
knowing the infected DNA below their waist wants to fuse their fingers into hooves. I flee to my office where the walls are bedecked with framed newspaper clippings. There I am condemning the bombing of China. There I am leading peace rallies. There I am organizing the 10th anniversary candlelight vigil of the dead of Pittsburgh, Laramie, Tampa. There I am, an absolute fool in everything I ever did. I hear Sergio talking upstairs, and as always, I unlock the gun safe. I'd fought against the damn thing, but Sergio needed his protection and take the rifle into my hands, trying to envision how I'll do it. I'll slip my finger into this trigger. I'll rest this barrel against his forehead. I'll shoot when the time is right. When is the right time to kill your husband? I put the gun away. Sergio's muttering to himself in a glossolalia of English and Chinese, a smeared mixture of himself and patient zero. And I ask myself the question that millions of families have wondered. Who is the man devouring my husband? Damn you, I think. My husband's dying, but you? You're immortal, lurking in long-abandoned septic tanks for unsuspecting plumbers to find. All you need is one breath through a cracked HEPA filter, and you're alive again. They should have bombed all of China, I mutter. Bruce? That's me, I force a smile. Your ever-loving husband. I forget you when you leave, he says. I can't remember things. That's okay, sweetie, I whisper. It's fine. No, it's not. There's going to come a point when it's not me. I'll be gone, and I don't know when that is. And if I spend my last moment in existence looking at a fucking wall before I wink out and not not seeing the man I love then oh it doesn't matter really it's so fucking selfish I'll be dead a second later vanished to nothing and it's stupid but I don't want my last sight to be a wall I want it to be you so I'll stay I try to make it sound easy I owned a plumbing company right he asks there were watch guards in my profession, government monitors checking my staff for infection. How much time do we have? I stiffen. A muddled Sergio might ask that, but it's also the kind of data the thing he's becoming would need to know. Answer, no, questions, the emergency bulletins had said. The cancer is a convincing actor. I don't know, I say. How long do you have? He slumps, disappointed. Bruce, use your head. The chinks didn't get James Bond for this, this patient zero crap. He's just another Hicks zealot who volunteered for a, for a suicide mission. I remember watching my, his buddies breaking out in tumors as they injected them and locked them in cages, hoping maybe one of this next batch would turn into a bio-soldier. It's okay, you don't have to... No, he didn't fucking eat, eat plastic. He ate turtle casseroles, noodles. They turned him, me, into a fucking monster. The snarl-toothed hulk that needed to eat recyclables to feed his unbreakable bones. 
something where his own wife would have shrieked if she'd seen him. And once they'd made him into a killing machine, they fucking killed him, Bruce. They threw his body into a blender and made it infectious. But he was dead long before they figured out how to cancerize him. And now he has to eat his way out of people's brains just to figure out where he is. He doesn't know how long it takes. He barely understands he's here, Bruce. Every time I close my eyes, I think I'm still in China, tugging at my cage's bars with distorted monster arms, wondering why the hell they haven't shipped me to America. And then some part of me remembers. America won the war a decade ago, and I just want to tear everything apart. And it's my rage, my anger. I reach out to hold him. Patient Zero grabs my arm. It yanks me toward the bed, having lured me in. But some part of Sergio rebels. His feet shove against the soft mattress, smashing his forehead into the cast-iron frame of the four-poster. Blood spurts. Patient Zero lets go, cursing in Chinese. You've got a week at most, you stupid fucker. I rub my bruised wrist. The CDCP's probably got a biohazard team at our doorstep in Long Island, and then they'll come here. Every agent in the CDCP is looking for you, and I am going to see you amputated. Patient Zero dissolves back into Sergio, crying low and hard. Or is it him? Baby, please, I plead, don't cry. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at it. I know that, he says. I'm losing it, Bruce. My memories are all slurred. I'll be your memory, Sergio, I plead. Just tell me what you forgot. I'll tell you how it was. He tugs on the chain so he doesn't start clawing at his skin. The canopy bed creaks under the strain. I have all these memories of you, he whispers, as a stupid hippie peacenik. I open my mouth, but find no reply. (laughs) Here you are, Sergio laughs crazily. You're just like me, wanting to burn China. But it's, it's trying to convince me you're one of those asshole protesters. Why would I have fallen in love with some stupid moon bat? I shiver, thinking of all the fights we had over those goddamn peace rallies. It's changing both of us, sweetie. I say, sagging against the wall. It's changing everything. Sergio is screaming. He's thrashing on the bed, chains jangling, flopping like a fish in a net. Cramps, he gasps, vibrating with anguish. Everything's seizing up. Jesus, Bruce, it hurts. I can't touch him. It's, it's growth pains, baby. His centaur tattoo is stretching like taffy. All those new muscles. But I know what's happening. Zero knows I won't give it plastic. And so it's accelerating the process. Daring me to let Sergio die before it's born. I'm on fire with my legs. God, everything's burning. Shrieks Sergio. And I'm running downstairs to grab cans of peaches and TV dinners. It bites through frozen peas and tray alike. Mashing them between ceramic teeth. When it's done... It collapses onto the bed with a cocky smile that's not Sergio's. I curl up against the blankets I've pushed against the wall, ashamed. I'm negotiating with terrorists. I'm desperate for vengeance. I'm everything I 
ever hated. A Republican's not just a Democrat who got mugged, I whisper. I want Sergio to argue like we used to, but he's too far gone to rise to that old bait. We always joke that our best foreplay was arguing, but he was furious at me for organizing peace rallies once the war started. They watch their mother's eyes melt in Pittsburgh, he said, planting his finger in the middle of my chest. In Laramie, their uncles mutated into killing machines that ate their children. And you're telling them they're selfish for wanting revenge? My head was bandaged. They'd flung bottles. We're not without sin here, Serge, I'd said. Our funding of resistance groups in Hong Kong, our economic sanctions that starved their children, the blockade of the Hebei province. So you're saying it's our fault? Jesus, no wonder they tried to lynch you. I'm saying it didn't come from nowhere. And they failed, Serge. They didn't win. Tell that to Tampa. He walked away, too angry to talk. Later, he came back and bumped the top of his head against my shoulder, our traditional method of asking for a hug. I put my arm around him. You've been reading those dead family blogs again, haven't you? I swear, he grumbled, nuzzling me. I don't even know why I stay with you sometimes. We made slow, mournful love. Our own private vigil. Conjoined, we mourned separate things. Sure, I felt that same gut-quivering terror whenever I heard the buzz of a Chinese drone, but I would not fall prey to fear. Instead, I organized candlelight vigils for the dead cities. And because I refused to be terrorized, I alone seemed to realize what historians would dutifully tally later. China's bio-invasion hadn't worked. Sure, they bombarded American airspace, flying under our missile shields with millions of light-wing drones, little more than high-tech bottle rockets, carrying payloads designed to overwrite people's DNA. But aside from a handful of notorious successes, China's war was the textbook example of how unfeasible targeted bioweapons were. Switching a country to a bio-warfare footing is nigh impossible. Ask your average sweatshop t-shirt maker to create weaponized DNA clusters. And that poor bastard isn't going to create quality fibrotic nodules. And the payload was a one-shot, no more transmissible than an actual cancer. If you didn't inhale it, the DNA fragmented after 20 minutes in sunlight. I had charts that showed if the Chinese had gone in with a barrage of nukes to overwhelm our shields, it would have led to far greater loss of life. Sure, when the clone cancers worked, they were hideous. Literal homegrown terrorists, with patient zero's hatred and the infected's hometown knowledge. They were smart enough to destroy Pittsburgh's unguarded chemical plants, to drive fuel trucks into Laramie's shop. Yet every success brought a thousand failures. Though the cancer overwrote the infector's DNA with patient zero's, most lay down and died. Sergio spent hours looking at the photo blogs devoted to the immobile dead. He'd spam the links to everyone on his social networks. Each blog was the same, done in somber black, lacking commentary. They didn't need it. Each showed families piled on their beds, pictures taken by CDCP epidemiologists, before they'd burned the buildings to cauterize any lingering payloads, a mother's slack limbs draped protectively around her daughters 
her husband fused to her back. Mother, daughter, husband, and son had the same face, their features distorted to match one man, patient zero. China never released his name, but America knew his features all too well. They'd seen a thousand corpses stamped with his black eyes. I couldn't look at the tribute sites. There was something too disturbing about seeing three children with the skin of their faces tugged askew like saran wrap piled up on their Buzz Lightyear bedspread. Their toys were still on the floor, the curtains burning. When people threw rocks at us during the peace rallies, they brandished those photos. Not the furious mutant murderers who'd trucked bomb Laramie, just those tumored, unmoving dead. I tried to tell Sergio that bombs were more efficient. That particular horror was just tried and tested is all. And despite China raining 18% of its GDP down on America, their bio-war killed only a few hundred thousand. Only, Sergio said. In the end, thanks to heavy international pressure, America fired only three retaliatory nuclear strikes. Only, I said, one for each of our dead cities. We incinerated millions of Chinese and brought not one American back from the dead. Nobody minded, because, as Sergio's right-wing blogs love to remind everyone, we can't kill China now. As long as there's an unfound biowarfare cache, forgotten at the bottom of some unnoticed bombing site, at least one Chinaman can always return. He is, as they say, infinitely patient. I look at my lover, subsumed in our guest bed. The men who did this to him are dead. And still, I want to scoop their ashes from radioactive rivers and breathe life back into them, just so I can slit their throats. He opens his eyes, now droplet black, and the horror of Sergio snaps every nerve in my body to on. I clasp my hands over my mouth to muffle my screams. Maybe Sergio was right. Maybe nobody who truly felt this could be rational. Or maybe, I think, I just need to fucking start practicing what I've preached. You don't know, I mutter to Sergio's infection. They made you into a weapon. You couldn't choose not to devour him even if you wanted to. It's not your fault. Sergio gives me a cold, curious look, a bird sizing up its prey. I forgive you, I say. Sergio, patient zero, narrows his eyes. Does he understand? He smiles, a tight-lipped mockery of Sergio's sunny grin, then looks hopelessly confused. It doesn't matter. This isn't a real forgiveness. It's a proof of concept. My hands are still eager to grab the rifle. Yet I promised I would be there to see the last of Sergio. And oh God, I'm too weak to forgive. If I really wanted to reassure the thing on the bed, I'd tell it that I lied. Sure, Sergio missed his Thursday check-in. And in the days after Laramie, Showing up a week late for a screening might have inspired hysteria. But it's been 11 years. Somewhere a bureaucrat at the CDCP is shooting Sergio another email. 
They're threatening him with fines another week, and they might send a cop out to knock on our door. Our only rescue is locked inside the gun cabinet. Days pass. I curl up in a nest of sweaty blankets and pea-filled plastic jugs by the doorway, terrified to leave. What if he cries out for the last time and I'm not there? Still, I keep sneaking downstairs to get the rifle from the safe, taking it out and putting it back. It'll get easier as the end approaches, I think. It must. Because when I glimpse Sergio out of the corner of my eye, I don't even register him as human. He's a blistered monkey, a man made from tinker toys. The tattoo spirals around his arm like a stripe around a barber's pole. Then... It curls up in the bed, hugging itself, and all I can see is Sergio. There isn't much left, though. Patient Zero stares out most of the time. It peers at me over and over again, frowning in concentration, as though it hopes to find some clue that will clarify things. We used to make love, it says in a thick accent flashing me the disgusted look that Sergio gave me whenever I dragged him to the opera. Yes, I whisper. We did. But you're a man. It sniffs in disgust. Did it matter? You know everything we had. I dare you to tell me it was wrong. I meet its gaze full on. It eases back onto the bed. A man, it gurgles, staring at the ceiling, chains rattling as it scratches Sergio's thigh. Sometimes Sergio emerges in stages, like a cloud blocking the sun. I can always tell when Sergio arises because he jolts awake, then stares in horror at his spade-like hands. It's my fault, he sobs. I should have, have changed that filter every month. I was cutting costs. They were expensive, I assure him. It was one fucking filter. The war was over. If I'd known, I would have bought a thousand filters so you wouldn't have to... to... I'm fine, I lied. Don't worry about me. I'm just so scared, Bruce. Sometimes I wake up and I remember this... this beautiful girl. And she's kissing me and she's married to me. Her skin is all wrong. I don't like it, but I do. And then I open my eyes and, and I see you. And I don't know who you are except that I know you love me. You love me. And I realize that I'm already dead. If I forget you, there's nothing to live for. That's why I'm here, Sergio. I'll be here until... Until... Kill me. The room's temperature drops ten degrees. What did you say? Kill me, please? I'm just making it worse for you. That's not love. Just in me. I'll go. It's okay. I'll be... Well, I won't be fine. I'll be nothing. But maybe that's better. Sergio, if you're not... Don't draw it out, goddammit, he yells, rubbing claw-like knuckles against wet cheeks. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But I want to live... I'm terrified of being nothing, but hurting you is worse than nothing. Just do it while I'm still me. I go downstairs to the gun cabinet for the last time. My hands are numb. They shake as I load it. 
I look around. The centaurs still have their hands in the air, but now they're holding them up in surrender, giving way to the man with the gun. When I returned, Sergio was braced himself against the canopy, holding himself in place for an easy shot. Look at me when you do it, he pleads. Let you be the last thing I see. The rifle has the weight of thirty years. At the end of the barrel, Sergio gives me a brave smile that quivers with fear. It's all right, he whispers. I love you. There's strength in those words. Such strength. I put down the gun. Bruce, no. I climb into the bed. He tries to shove me away, but he doesn't mean it. He could tear me in half if he wanted. Instead, I crawl across the stained blankets to the greatest love of my life, and I bump my head against his shoulder. I can't hold him back forever, Bruce. Please shoot me. But I slide my arms underneath his, feeling my palms bump over the knurls on his spine and pull him close. He hugs me back with love. Such ineffable love. Take your time, I say. I bury my face in the hollows of his throat. Patient Zero's vinegary stench fills my nostrils, but I nuzzle him closer and smell flannel shirts, New York apartments with broken air conditioners. He rubs my back, foreign hands with a familiar touch. I can't, he apologizes, his grip weakening. I can't hold him. Shh, I say, kissing his neck. Let go. He does. I keep my cheek pressed against Sergio's forehead, stroking his black hair. His scent is gone. I should call the CDCP and let the professionals handle this. But I promised I wouldn't leave. So I will spend my last moments whispering in this thing's ear, in the hope that Sergio will not spend his last moment in the universe alone. And then Patient Zero will tear me to ribbons. It stirs, an anxious child waking from a nightmare. I tense. I pray he'll be quick. It should have been someone else, Sergio says, his voice thick with the regret that is not Sergio's at all. Patient Zero clamps me against its chest. A million times, it says in accented English, rocking back and forth. A million failures. If I'd been stronger, I would have destroyed you all. My wife would be alive. I don't. But as it drags me back down to the bed, I realize it's hugging me. I knew how bad Americans were, it says. Its thin lips brushing against my ears, it tells me its secret. I heard the cries of the starving young in Zhangjing. Make me a cancer to devour those soulless bastards, I said. Break me into the smallest parts you can. I will eat my way out of them, then feast on their children. It coughs, spraying out red mist. I can feel its body shutting itself down just as it sped itself up. They wanted me to have Sergio's memories. Vinegar tears dot alien eyes. They wanted me to have the combination to his gun safe, his customer's addresses. But I got you too. 
And how could I kill you then? How could I kill anyone? I saw his memories. It closes its eyes, sinking into the bed. Those families dying. That's me lying down, me and each of them, and giving up. I can't fight all the love in the world. I just can't. Patient Zero brings up one hand to claw at his eyes, grimacing in self-hatred. But already, he's too weak to move. Go, he says, bitterly releasing me. I look at what used to be Sergio, and is now something else. A ghost in stolen skin. A hunter doomed to love his prey. A secret the United States burned whole towns to hide. Its resemblance to Sergio is faint, nothing more than an interpretive sketch, but even the parts that aren't Sergio now seem beautiful. I nestle into the arms of the man who devoured my husband, offering forgiveness. I said go, he barks. Instead, I hug him. He crumples into me. The failed weapon cries, pressing his face to my chest as he laments everything he never was. I hold him until he's gone. Later on, I bury Sergio and Zero in the backyard. I'm okay that they share a grave. that was our story. Ferret has this to say about the story. My stepfather was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in spring of 2008, and my mother got to watch him die over the course of the next 18 months. It was one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever witnessed. Two people entangled in something not of their own making, each filled with such love, each unable to do a thing to stave off the inevitable. Grieving, I wrote a story that tried to encapsulate that love and turn it into something more meaningful, for that's what good fiction does. It doesn't stop me from missing him, though. So, I can't really say anything beyond that. So, I will let that story and his comments be. Hello, faithful listeners. I'm here this week with a feedback for episode 325, Bad Dogs Escape, by James Patrick Kelly. This one was an audio drama, so we have a cast instead of a single reader. That cast was A.B. Kovacs playing Becca. Pamela Quavillian playing Sam, and John Smarr playing Mel Gibson. Slag said, I actually kind of liked that this apocalyptic scene wasn't hopeful in the end. It kind of reminds the reader that not everyone you meet at the end of the world is ready to jumpstart the whole thing up again. It did kind of make me wonder about the man, though. I wonder how long after he woke up, those first thoughts of repopulation ran through his head. Him being a politician kind made me think maybe he was already looking for some kind of advantage in the world, even one was so far gone. Being the last man on Earth has its advantages, or so you might think before running into the man-eaters like this. Not to say these were man-eaters, I refer more to the Paul and Oates brand of man-eater. Electric Paladin said, I'm afraid this one was a total mess with me. I'm quite sick of stories that attempt to take mankind to task for behaving like living organisms. You know what we call creatures that don't reproduce, expand their territory, and respond to threats? Dead. 
Of course, it behooves us to do these things in such a way that we don't destroy our own environment, cause us necessary pain and suffering to the creatures around us, and so on. But while the story fails to make a distinction between growth and irresponsible growth, I get a little annoyed. I think that the trick to a better attitude about the environment is less viewing ourselves as apart from and above nature, but more acknowledging that we are also animals. So in other words, screw the whales. Save us. Nope, this is not to be construed as a genuine apathy towards whales. I love whales. And that's it for this week. Tune in next week with the, with the feedback for episode 327, Revenants. Escape Pod is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. All other rights are reserved by our authors. We're a pro-paying market, meaning we live on your donations. And by we, I mean Escape Artists, which includes Escape Pod at escapepod.org, our sister podcasts, Podcastle at podcastle.org, and Pseudopod at pseudopod.org. Any donation goes to all three podcasts and supports all three. Escape Pod is edited by Mer Lafferty, with Bill Peters as assistant editor and Matt Weller as producer. Music is by permission of Daikaiju, and you can hear more from them at daikaiju.org. That was our show for this week. Our quote comes from Helen Keller. What we have once enjoyed, we can never lose. All that we love deeply becomes a part of us. Thanks for listening. Have fun, and be mighty. Be mighty.